Welcome to the Break Free Real Estate Podcast. Hey guys, so today David and I are going to share what a 1031 exchange timeline looks like. Um, I've personally used a 1031 exchange. I foresee myself using plenty more in the future. And um, David, have you have you ever personally used I'm, one of these? I haven't personally used the 1031. So I've helped a lot of clients with their 1031s. Um, our type of deals are they're a little bit harder to do 1031 exchanges on. But anyways, yeah. Great, great. So I mean, it was a it was a while ago when I um, went over these terms, but the biggest thing that I think a lot of people don't completely understand is when you use a 1031 exchange, you have to be exchanging a like kind property. And so I actually ran into this hiccup because I was house hacking a property and sold it, used a 1031 on that property for a. Templex, which was um, truly investment. I wasn't going to live in it. And so I was only able to use that 1031 exchange on whatever percent of the property I wasn't living in. And so maybe I could have done the taxes myself or found an accountant who would have done it the way where all of it transfers over. But legally, that's how how it should be. And so the biggest thing is just understand that if you own a home and you're living in it and you have no rental income and you've been claiming no rental income, if you use a 1031 on that exchange on that property and you don't buy another home that you're going to live in, then it's kind of going to be like pointless for you. Um, if you're living in half of it and you're showing that on your taxes, you can only write off half of it. Or if you have a true investment property and you're trading it for another true investment property, then um, it's awesome because then you are writing off a lot of taxes. Um, you don't have to pay a lot of taxes right now. It's deferred. David, we'll let David explain everything. And then the other thing that... Um, is really important for you to understand is that the taxes are deferred. So unless unless you're like planning on like the deferred, deferred, deferred die strategy, <laughs> you have to understand that those taxes are going to come back to you eventually and maybe back to you, your kids or family if you pass them on. I don't know um, what that looks like right now, but even if they wouldn't have to pay taxes on them, which is how I think it is. That could easily change as well in the next 50 years, hopefully. Um, so that could also change. Um, so just understand that those taxes can come back. And so um, I don't know. I have mixed opinions on it. I've used one. I got you know a decent tax deduction. But at the same time, um, there's other programs or other ways you can, you know, avoid paying a lot of taxes. That might be the better route to go. Um, sorry, I'm rambling here. One more thing that I think um, if if you're not going to find a property that is a good property, like if you're rushed because of the timeline, if you're rushed and you're going to find a worse pro a property that isn't great and that... Um, isn't in your buy box or isn't a property you should be buying, then it's not worth it. Then just pay the taxes. And so those are like my three um, 
things to think about when when David's explaining all the regulations. They're awesome. 1031s are <laughs> awesome, but there's also drawbacks that people don't think about. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the timeline. Uh, the the timeline. I'll walk. I'll walk through just a general general sort of bullet point timeline of a 1031. So you have a property that you decide to sell. The first thing that you need to do is get in touch with what's known as a QI or a qualified intermediary. Part of the 1031 exchange process requires that you don't ever touch any of the money that comes from your investment property. It goes and it's handled by this qualified intermediary. And if you just Google qualified intermediary, QI, uh, a lot of the title companies that, that you have have a sister company that is a QI and so they can help facilitate your 1031. But the money comes to the QI and then it's dispersed. So you never touch it. Therefore, it's never taxable. That's part of the process. So you go find a qualified intermediary. You list your property for sale and then you sell the original property. Well, the, the moment you close on the sale of your original property, um, it begins a clock ticking and you have 45 days to identify a replacement property. And the key here is you've got 45 days to replace, and then you have 180 days to actually close on the purchase of one of the properties that you identify. And there's really two ways that you can identify property in a 1031 exchange um, in that 45-day window. So you have 45 days to identify a property that you want to exchange into. You can identify up to three properties. Um, that's known as just sort of a general three property rule. And then you have another option to identify any number of properties as long as their total value doesn't exceed a certain threshold. And that threshold is 200%. So there, there's a couple different ways to identify property, but just know that the moment you sell your original property that starts the clock for that 45-day window, and you've got to identify within 45 days. And then you have a little bit of time to you know, close on the sale. But to Jocelyn's point, a lot of people get stuck in a scenario where they you know, get their original property under contract or sell their original property, and then they struggle to find a good replacement property. So one strategy that you can use is to go out there and start looking for your potential replacement property, make offers subject to a 1031 exchange. So make offers subject to you being able to sell your original property. So it's a little bit uh, you know, reverse order, but that's a, that's a great way to give you a lot of time and a lot of freedom and a lot of flexibility to make sure that you're doing a good deal. Um, so that's the timeline of a 1031 exchange. And I would say that to your point, Jocelyn, um, 1031 exchanges aren't always the right way to do things. It depends on circumstances. You're going to want to talk with a good accountant and uh, a good CPA to, to guide you on that. One of the reasons why we don't do 1031 exchanges is because we hold our apartment communities for generally uh, around five to seven, three to seven years, basically. And we do cost segregation studies, which allows us to take big losses up front. And maybe we'll go into what that is all about in a future episode. So we are able to take these big losses, which offset the income that we generate uh, 
at least a big portion, if not all of the income that we would generate from the asset itself. So a 1031 exchange really isn't necessary for us in, in those circumstances. Um, and then I, I guess the last thing that I would say is that um, right now, the 1031 exchange is powerful because like you said, you can 1031 exchange, 1031 exchange, continue to defer these taxes. And currently, to your point, this could change in the future, but currently you can do that for your entire life. And then when you pass on, your estate gets uh, your portfolio and a stepped up tax basis. And they currently do not have to pay taxes on your portfolio um, because they get stepped up in basis and there's no taxable event there. Uh, that could change in the future. But right now, man, it's a powerful strategy for passing on generational wealth for sure. Yeah. Defer, 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 die. That's what it's called. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Are you, and then um, have you, David, have you ever learned about like a 1031 like construction option? Because I learned about I, that. I've heard about it. In fact, uh, we might've discussed it the other day, but no, I've never dealt with that. I'm not sure how that process works. So that's one thing I did look into because the the property I was buying needed some repairs. And so essentially, instead of just using, because you have to use all of the money for, for the property. So if you don't use all the money for the property, whatever you don't pass on to the next property is um, considered income. So let's say I sold the house for 200,000 profit and I only need 100,000 for my down payment. Now, it's kind of sucks that you have to put that all in one property because you know you could split that up into a couple different properties. Um, but another strategy you can use is you can put like a hundred thousand into your property and then a lot of the same um 1031 exchange QIs uh can do a construction loan. It's a little bit higher, not a loan, sorry, a construction 1031. It's a little bit higher for fees, I believe, but um, essentially they have the money, they have the 200,000 and then same rules apply with buying a house. So you, you find the property, you buy it. Um, and let's say you put a hundred thousand down and then they keep the, they keep the other hundred and you have like, I, I believe it's a year to do your renovations. And it's essentially mm. like a bank account that you're able to pull out that money and use has to be used for the property. And so if you want to buy a fixer upper, now that might help you buy another property because you didn't take cash out of your pocket to fix it up. But that's also an option to keep in mind. Um I had one more thing to think about, but it's to talk about, but it slipped my mind. So <laughs> well that's an interesting thought. I'll have to dig into that a little bit more because uh, that seems like a pretty cool option, especially for value add plays, rehab plays. So yeah, that's cool. Yep, for sure. That's it for today. For more daily investing tips and real estate secrets, don't forget to visit breakfreerealestate.com and make sure to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. We will see you tomorrow. Mm -hmm.